Turn your Bibles this morning to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We'll be there in just a few minutes. We are, as many of you know, superhero movie fans. We've seen them all. Captain America, Thor, Iron Man, Spider-Man. We even went to see the DC movies. We've watched them all. The storylines of these sometimes change with the movies, and that's certainly the case when there is a a television version of one of these movies or one of these comics. And and that was the case way back in the late 70s and 80s. The, The Hulk had his own TV show. Then he went by David Banner. Now it's Bruce Banner. His name is actually David Bruce Banner, so... He went by David back in the, in the television show, character played by Bill Bixby. He was a scientist who was, who was searching for a serum to unlock hidden strength. Hidden strength that he thought is found in everyone. He wanted to know why it was that some people can display heroic acts of strength when they find themselves in these catastrophic situations, these catastrophic dangers, like a a woman being able to pick up a car to save her child or something along those lines. His, His motivation in the television show is the loss of his wife in an accident, an accident that he was involved in but found himself unable to save her, though he tried. His fervent and urgent testing led him to experiment on himself with dangerous levels of gamma rays that eventually altered his DNA and when he would get angry he would turn into the Hulk played by Lou Ferrigno. The struggle with David, the struggle that Banner was dealing with in this show is he was looking for something inside of himself that did not exist. He wanted superhuman strength so that he could explain away the tragedies of his life. He wanted to be a god. He had lost hope. He would lost faith. He would lost heart. Friends, we fall into the same trap. We try some new diet to get healthy. We try some new spirituality to get happy with God. We try some new wife or husband or job or whatever it is. All the while still feeling lost and desperate because our search for answers keeps turning up short. Paul was writing to a church that was struggling. He was writing to a church that was struggling when he pins the letter that we now call 2 Corinthians. His first letter was full of admonitions about being unified in the face of division, about ordering the church, theological discussions about the resurrection, and so much more. 2 Corinthians is not much different. However, in this letter, much of the struggle is over suffering. It's over suffering that the church is enduring. Chapter 1 and chapter 2 of this book are reminders of the comfort that God brings in the face of pain. 
pain brought on by life circumstances, but even the pain that's sometimes brought on by biblical accountability. And Paul tells the church, don't run from it, but rather grow in it. The end of chapter 2 and 3 of 2 Corinthians, Paul reminds the church of their, their victory in Christ, their victory over sin, their victory over this world, and this victory now calls them to be ministers of a new covenant. Later in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul's going to call them ambassadors of the gospel of Jesus' death and resurrection, as though God himself were speaking and pleading to a lost world, be reconciled through your repentance and faith. When Paul opens up chapter 4, he continues to build on those thoughts. Now, I'm not going to take time to walk through every verse of this chapter, but there are, there are three big ideas, three big ideas that Paul capitalizes on that are going to lead the church then and lead the church now to a deeper sense of hope in Christ wherein we will not lose heart. If you've got your Bibles open, read with me the first six verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And we see the first of these big ideas, which is the purity of the Word of God. Paul opens this chapter saying, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's Word. But by the opening statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. With ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake, for God, or for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The purity of the Word of God. I want to highlight four things out of this statement that he makes when Paul says, first of all, that we refuse to tamper with the Word of God. So there's four ways in this passage that we're not going to tamper with the Word of God. First, he says we're going to renounce disgraceful, underhanded, and cunning ways. Secondly, he says we are going to rely on God's sovereign reign in the lives of our hearers. Third, he says we're going to recognize the enemy's tactics in the lives of unbelievers. And finally, he says... We are going to proclaim the singular message of Jesus Christ as Lord. Let me unpack these for a second and offer some applications on each of these. To say that the Word of God is under attack in our culture is an understatement. The saddest part, though, the saddest part is not that it's under attack by the world. We would expect that. The saddest part is that too often it is attacked right here in the church. 
Paul warns here of disgraceful, underhanded, and cunning ways of using God's Word. Many times we hear from the popular pulpit a Bible verse used to support some idea of pop psychology. As you know, we frequent, probably too often now, I've moved my books out of my office, we frequent used bookstores. And a couple of weeks ago, Kathleen and I were in a new one up on the west side of Evansville, and we saw the title of a book. The book's title was The Comedian's Guide to Theology. Now, I am judging a book by its cover. But for too many in the popular world of church, the Bible is called the authoritative word, but treated as anecdotes and punchlines. Beloved, this is disgraceful, underhanded, and sometimes cunning. The thought is that if we lighten the severity of the Word of God, it will attract unbelievers and unchurched. This is a false premise. Hell is real. Judgment is real. And lost people will face God's judgment and go to hell if they remain unregenerate, if they remain unsaved. And Paul makes it clear that we cannot tamper with the Word of God. But friends, it's not just the pulpit issue. This is not just a pulpit issue. Too often, it is a pew issue as well. I've said this before, and I genuinely believe it. Friends, if all of the Bible that you are getting is on Sunday morning in a preaching service, you are starving yourself to eternal death. It's like sitting down to a dinner table, watching everyone else eat, only to collect a few tidbits that fall from the table. It doesn't matter who's preaching or who's teaching. You could line up all the greats, from Ambrose to Augustine or Luther or Calvin or Knox or Wesley or Whitfield or Spurgeon or those of today, your Pipers and MacArthur's, your Chandler's, your Platt's, your Evans, all of them. And you could listen to them and hundreds more for hours upon hours, but you would not get the nourishment of spending one hour with God in His Word. Friends, apart from handling God's worth, God's Word with disgrace, or handling underhandedly, is to expect Him to give everything you need in a 40-minute sermon when you, do, when you feel like coming to church. We as preachers have a grave responsibility before God to handle His Word with reverence and to preach and teach in a manner that brings conviction and hope, that brings repentance and faith, and that causes an insatiable thirst in you for more. And when we don't, we sin. But you as believers have a similarly grave responsibility to drink deeply from the well of God's truth that is in His Word. The first way that we tamper with God's Word is to keep 
the book closed on the shelf or to handle it lightly or in a trivial manner or as I heard John Piper say in a message one time to handle it with levity it's the second way Paul says he refuses to tamper is that when he studies or when he preaches or when he teaches he relies fully on the sovereignty of God Paul says in this section we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 55 11 says that God's Word does not come back it does not return void or empty but it accomplishes God's will beloved too often we find ourselves trying to debate or convince or negotiate the Word of God with a lost world we are called to proclaim the truth the truth that sanctifies Jesus says in John 17 17 and the truth that draws all men to Christ from John chapter 12 verse 32 Paul teaches in his letter to the Romans that faith comes by hearing hearing by the Word of God and then he says how shall they hear unless someone proclaims unless someone preaches we are refusing to tamper with God's Word when we are reading and studying and preaching and teaching and listening as though God himself were speaking to us because he is you want to hear God's voice read the Bible out loud when Paul finished preaching at Athens to the philosophers at the Areopagus the Bible says some questioned some denied and some believed but when Paul when all was said and done when Paul finished preaching he left Acts chapter 17 verse 33 says and when he finished so Paul went out from their midst he left the debating to the philosophers and the results to God every time friends every single time we attempt to qualify the Word of God with our wisdom or our wit or our personality or our experience or anything else we tamper with the purity of his truth our call as followers of Christ is to say what God has said that's why the Old Testament is filled with phrases like thus says the Lord our refusal to tamper with the Word of God results in our handling with results with our not handling it with disgrace or cunning tactics it also means that we embrace it by trusting God for the outcomes thirdly Paul says about the purity of the Word of God it means that we recognize that there is an enemy blinding the world of this truth verses 3 and 4 say and even if our gospel is veiled it is veiled to those who are perishing in their case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God oh my goodness friends how we can be so blinded by the enemy blinded by being like all the other churches blinded by numbers in our budgets or our buildings blinded by the mentalities of consumerism or materialism or nationalism or politicalism or selfishism 
or judgmentalism and a hundred other isms that are all about me. The God of this world doesn't care. Listen, the God of this world doesn't care how he blinds a lost heart as long as he blinds them some way. Paul's word urges, or Paul's word usage here is interesting. He says that the enemy, which to be very clear, is the devil. It is Satan and his cunning and deceiving tactics. But Paul says that the enemy blinds unbelievers from seeing the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ. You know, at certain times of the year, and I think right now is one of them, you can get out here on Highway 351 and try to head to town. And somewhere around 7.30, the sun is blinding you. You can't see the road. You can't see oncoming traffic. You can't see anything. It's ironic that the very source of our ability to see anything, the light that allows us to see anything, is sometimes the light that blinds us. Light should illuminate the glory of Christ. But the blinded minds, the blinded hearts of the world can't or won't see it. Paul says something similar in Romans chapter 1 when he talks about the attributes of God being clearly seen. Being clearly seen. But because of man's foolish thinking, we dishonored God and our hearts were darkened and we worshiped the creation instead of the creator. Friends, our only weapon of spiritual warfare is the word of God. But we want to shoot Bible bullets all the time at people trying to win an argument without recognizing that we are standing in the midst of an enemy who lavishes darkness on top of darkness. He deflects every good and perfect gift from God into the shadows of death that this lost world may miss the glory of Christ. Handling the Word of God means that we do not use underhanded or cunning schemes. It means that we teach and preach and live in the authority of God's sovereignty as displayed in the working through His Word. And it means that we stand in the darkness of the world and preach the light of the gospel even in the face of our mortal enemy. The only means by which the eyes of our hearts can be enlightened is through a spirit of wisdom and revelation which is only found in the Word. Lastly, under this heading of the purity of the Word of God, the idea of not tampering with it is that we only really have one message. We only have one message, and that message is found in verse number 5. Paul says, we proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. Friends, we don't need ten ways to have a happy marriage. We don't need three steps to financial freedom or twelve steps to end an addiction or four ways to improve your career or as a blog title I saw while I was writing this message, 10 essential steps to success to actually reach your dreams. I need 10 steps to figure out what that's talking about. What we need is Jesus Christ as Lord, period, nothing else. Jesus Christ as Lord, 
nothing else. And we can see, see this in every word and every verse of the Bible. We see this in every word and every verse. I looked it up. I used the ESV, the English Standard Version of the Bible. And according to one article, there are 770,000, 75,000 words and over 31,000 verses in this Bible. And beloved, every single one of them scream, Jesus is Lord. That is our message. Paul tells us, don't lose heart. Because we are looking for that something extra that's deep down inside of us. It begins with refusing to tamper with God's Word and ensuring that every message is Jesus, is Lord. The purity of God's Word. But Paul tells us not to lose heart for another reason. He says in verses 7 through 12, because of God's surpassing power. Read that with me. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our bodies. For we, who are, for we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be man, made manifest in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. In you. Here's why preaching Jesus as Lord is so incredibly important. You will be afflicted by this world. You will be perplexed. You will be persecuted. You will be struck down. And you will carry death in your body. But friends, you will not be crushed. You will not be driven to despair. You will not be forsaken. You will not be struck down. Why? Because Jesus is Lord. Beloved, I ask you to remember the, the last words of Jesus right before he would give the great commission to his disciples and they would go make disciples of all nations. Matthew 28, 18 says, all authority, all authority in heaven and on earth are given to me. All authority the surpassing power for us to never lose heart is found in Christ. What kind of power is that? It's an unchallenged power. Exodus chapter 7, I would say that would be a place where the children of Israel would find themselves perplexed. They were in the midst of, of slavery in Egypt. And Exodus chapter 7 says that God sent Moses back to Egypt to free his people but he says also so that the Egyptians the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord it's an unchallenged power Jesus looks at Pilate moments before he would order Jesus's execution he looks him in the eyes and he says you have 
no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. You have no authority, Pilate. All belongs to Jesus. Paul prays in Philippians chapter 3 that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his suffering. It's a resurrection power. It's a resurrection authority. God's surpassing power. One of the greatest archaeological discoveries occurred in 1947 when, as the story goes, a shepherd boy threw a rock into a, into a cave and he heard a clay bottle break. Over the next 10 years or so, the, the Dead Sea Scrolls would be discovered. And they are still being studied and researched. Among the thousands of, of, of pieces of literature they found, some of the scrolls contained Old Testament texts preserved for over 2,000 years. And as those texts were studied, it was discovered that God's surpassing power protected His Word from being tampered with by those who may want to destroy its preservation. Friends, listen to what Paul is saying here. On a much higher reality, God has entrusted these clay pots, this body of dying flesh that you and I now inhabit. He has entrusted us with the highest and holiest message of hope in the history of history. Truth has an enemy, an enemy that we cannot withstand. So the power to sustain, the power to lead to victory, the power to exalt Christ, the power to make disciples through the afflictions, through the perplexities, through the persecutions, through it all is found in the surpassing power of God to raise Jesus from the dead and give us life, abundant life, eternal life. Don't lose heart. Don't lose heart by staying true to the Word of God. Don't lose heart by walking and living in the surpassing power of God. And finally, Paul reminds us, don't lose heart because of the people of God. Read with me verse 13 through the end of the chapter. Since we have this same spirit of faith according to what we have written, I believe and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake. So that as grace extends, look at this, to more and more people it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient 
that the things that are unseen, eternal. Don't lose heart. Discouragement comes so easily. We don't get what we expect. We do get what we didn't expect. We lose a loved one. We lose our way. Pain becomes almost unbearable. We lose heart. We give up. We just don't know if we can make it another day. And the Apostle Paul says, don't. Don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. How can Paul say this? He doesn't know my pain. He doesn't know my darkness. No, maybe he doesn't. But he does know the light of the glory of God. He does know the family of God that walks in the fire with us every step. He knows the body of Christ. Verse 15 reminds us that as we faithfully and truly proclaim God's Word, grace extends to more and more and more so that thanksgiving may increase abundantly to more and more. Don't lose heart because of God's people. I want to take my last few minutes of this message and I guess my last official act of ministry at Zion to say thank you because God's grace was extended to you and you extended it to me. There were days when it would have been easy, very easy, to lose heart. But people, God's people, stepped up in such an amazing, faithful ways that the drive to keep moving forward never wavered. This week I sat and reminisced a little bit about the joy I've had of working with the folks who have been on staff here at Zion. When I started here, Gail Pearson, Cheryl Ragland, Cheryl, I saw you somewhere a second ago, along with Tracy Eatonson and Katie Duncan, they staffed our office. They kind of broke me into the ways of business at Zion. Miriam Key later joined our team for a while and did an incredible job before her her dream opportunity was presented to her. Later, our office was staffed with Lynn Galloway, and she was an important part of our team. Kim Jackson was here leading as a community coordinator, a community outreach coordinator. I'm thankful even day, today to be working with Susan in our office. The very first person I met at Zion outside of our search committee was standing right out there in front of where our welcome desk is now. And Johnny Beasley grabbed my hand and said, Welcome. Not only was he a faithful co-worker and a partner in ministry, but he became a very, very good friend. Others I've worked here with, even if it's for a short time. Kenny Clement served on our staff for a while, and Bruce Sigler helped us out one summer, and I appreciate these men so very much. Certainly much occurred a couple of years ago, but, but regardless of the circumstances of their departures, I am grateful. I am grateful for the ministry partnership and the friendships 
that I develop with both Mark and Bill as, as fellow pastors here at Zion. I'm thankful to have worked, though limited, to have worked with Chris Thomas and now Jared Marshall, who is over at our South Campus. And there's no way I could express enough gratitude to, to Jamie Hatter and Morgan Sutton, who took on leadership in our children's ministry and were amazing despite all the turmoil in our senior leadership. I still believe, I still believe that part of the reason that God called me to Zion Baptist Church was to put my office next to the door of Mickey Taylor. He knew I was too proud and too arrogant and too stupid to actually talk to someone who could help me in a counseling relationship. And so God gave Mickey a project in me, and we became great friends. She was a source of strength, support, and incredible wisdom. Chrissy Larkham taught me something new every single day, and I can't begin to express my gratitude towards her. And though we don't give them much to work with, these guys that are in these booths back here, Tommy and Jerry and Dwayne and Chris, they can't make us look any better, but I'm thankful they make us sound better. Judd and Michelle, so much more than a custodial staff here at Zion. They are beautiful, wonderful friends. People who walk this journey with Christ every day. Through the struggles, through the difficulties, they walk it with dignity and grace. I'm thankful to call Julie my friend. She trusted me when no one trusted anybody. She encouraged and supported and worked herself to death for the sake of this church. And friends, no one will ever be able to fully appreciate her commitment to this ministry and her pastoral staff. I'm thankful to call Doug a friend. His wisdom and experience are unmatched. The eternal value he brings this church and has for over 15 years will never be fully known this side of heaven. With new leadership and new friends and Mike and Neil working with the folks who are so committed to this church, the vision for this body is inconceivable. There is so much kingdom work that we can do and God will guide and will lead and bless beyond imagination. There are so many more that I could name. I'm thankful for committee leaders and deacons and Sunday school teachers and other leaders, members of this church who call just to check on us to invite us to breakfast or invite us to lunch. I love you people. I love you all. And we don't lose heart. We don't lose heart because you were and are faithful.
My kids are incredible. Regardless of difficulties or differences, I love them inexpressibly and am proud beyond measure. They are my hope for the future. I love you, Sarah. I love you, Mary, and I love you, Paul. And I am nothing without my wife. There are no words in any language that can express my love and appreciation for Kathleen. She may have mothered her children, but she raised a husband. For over two decades, she has walked every hill and every valley, every triumph and every tragedy, every joy, every sorrow, never wavering for a second in her faithfulness to me or to God's call to serve as a pastor's wife, the most difficult calling in all of Christianity. Thank you. I love you. We don't. We don't lose heart because of God's Word. We don't lose heart because of God's power. And we don't lose heart because of God's people. One final note from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul closes this chapter by saying, We look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen, eternal. Friends, my last exhortation, focus on eternity, not temporary. Focus on eternity, not temporary. When all of this is gone, when the buildings fall down and the politics erode and the beauties fade, when pastors and people come and go, everything is gone. The only thing that remains is Christ. The gospel of Christ's death and resurrection. The body of Christ that He has redeemed in His finished work. That is all that will remain. Invest your lives there. Never lose heart. God's word is eternal. God's power is eternal. God's church is eternal. And that is something worth living for.